Hi everyone, Pastor Michael here, and I want to thank you for tuning in to our sermon podcast. I want to encourage you to use this resource in addition to, and not in place, of belonging to a local church body as you grow in your faith. If this sermon is a blessing, would you consider giving back to Springs Church? You could do that by giving on the app or by visiting the gift tab on our website at springs.church. I pray this sermon increases your passion for Christ and helps you grow in your walk with God. Isn't that beautiful? See so many lives surrendering to Christ. And what a, what a privilege it was for me for so many years, weekend after weekend, seeing crowds like that, young people crying out to God. And you know, you don't have to water down the gospel in order for people to commit. Sometimes we, I think we, we have too much of that happening. We just want so bad for people to come forward. We think if we don't water it down, they won't come. And uh, Jesus did just the opposite. He's like, he actually was the only guy I ever knew that gave an altar call for people to leave him. <laughs> he says, eat my flesh, drink my blood. If that's too hard, go ahead and leave. Anybody want to leave? I see that hand. I see that hand. Yeah. And there's only 12 guys left, you know. Anybody else? He gave an extended altar call. Any, any of you guys want to leave now? And Jesus, and P- Peter says, where else would we go? You know, there are moments in our life when things don't make sense. And if you're hearing a sermon from a guy that says, eat my flesh or drink my blood, I think that'd be one of those. Like, I don't, this is kind of creepy. But even though it's creepy, I don't understand it. But I know one thing, he has the words of life. And even when I don't understand what's going on around me, I'm still going to keep following Jesus because he has the words of life. Amen? You know, um, I think uh, where sin abounds, grace abounds more. You know, uh, I got to be in front of so many young people for so many years doing big events like this. Um, Honestly, because I think it was because I was a rascal as a kid and God rescued me from so much. And I remember thinking in uh, in college, I'm like, if if God could rescue me as, as jacked up as I was, he can get to anybody. So I was a kid, I grew up in California. I just want to let you get to know me for a minute before we get into the word, okay? So we can be friends, is that all right? So I grew up in California and we were a good Christian family. (laughs) Uh, My parents were divorced when I was young and they got remarried and divorced, remarried different families, different parents, different people. And so, but we were a good church going family. And we went to every dead, boring, pathetic, petrified, fossilized church in California. I can use a few more adjectives if you need. Uh, I mean, they were dead. I mean, I hated going to church. In fact, one church we went to was so dead. I know it sounds like a joke. It's not a joke. It was so dead that the um, ushers had made these poles with a little tennis ball on the end, and they would patrol the aisle while the pastor was preaching. And if they found somebody nodding off like this, they would take that pole with a little ball and they'd push that person's head back up like that. Now, you know you're going to a dead church if you got ushers with poles keeping people awake. I hated going to church. I thought I was going to prison every week. What did I do to deserve this? I thought I was going to a funeral every week. Everybody looked pretty old, like they were, maybe had already died. I didn't know. You know, big dirge, organ, and all this. I hated it. So... Um, when I was 15, I ran away from my mom uh, and to go find my dad, and I hadn't seen him since I was seven. And the first night I saw my dad, 
uh, he gave me this great California parenting advice. Son, if you're going to try any of that marijuana, you just be sure and bring it home so we can all try it together. <laughs> and I'm thinking, I got the coolest dad in the world, right? So I remember somewhere the, the Bible says you're supposed to obey your parents. You know that selective obedience thing, right? So um, I, I felt obligated. I, I found some weed and I brought it home. And him and me and my stepmom would get high. And I'm think I'm living the dream, right? I'm just um, uh, 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 50 and I turned 16. And so my whole 16 year in high school, I'm just a party animal, you know, getting drunk and all doing drugs and stuff like this. And then a friend invites me to church. How many ever invited somebody to church? How many have ever invited somebody that was the least likely to say yes? That was me, okay? I'm like the party dude, right? And so this friend invites me and I'm like, sure. I'm cool. God's cool. We'll get along fine. So you can see I was arrogant as well. So um, I go and, uh, to this church and, and uh, I'd never been to a church like this. In fact, my friend said on the way into church, he goes, I hope you're used to those churches where people lift their hands. I'm like, what do they lift their hands for? Do they have questions? Uh, I, I, you know, like school or something. So uh, I go in and it freaked me out. There's about 200 people crammed in this church and they are like singing as loud as they can. And like, and they're singing louder than the band, right? And people are crying and they're looking up to the sky. They were crazy, like you people, right? And I'm like, what happened to these people, you know? And they're just like so smiley and stuff, you know? And, and then I, I kind of was wondering, I was trying to dissect. I'm, I'm, not, I'm just a raw heathen, right? I don't know what's going on. So I'm trying to like understand what's going on. And they're sort of looking up to the sky and they're like, and I'm like, who are they looking at? So I'm in the back going, trying to see, they're kind of looking under the stage, and I thought they were looking at the pastor. And I thought, these people love their pastor. They're singing. It sounded like love songs to me. They were passionate. They love their pastor. They're singing and singing. And I'd never heard a church like this. I'm like, okay, we get it. You love your pastor. Then I started looking at the words on the screen. I'm 16. I'm not the sharpest knife or in the drawer, right? And I'm like, they're singing to Jesus. I'm like, what's going on? These people are singing to God? They're singing to Jesus. And I thought, the first thought was, these poor people. They think Jesus can hear them when they sing. And then something flashed through my mind. <gasps> I wonder if he can. Isn't that weird? I've been in church my whole life. and never even crossed my mind Jesus might hear us when we sing. So then, I'm, so I'm sitting there. Singing was done finally. Tears were done. Crying. Everybody's crying, you know, crying and worshiping and all that. And um, then the preacher got up to speak. First sermon I ever heard in English. How many know what I'm talking about? Chinese, Japanese, Christianese. Man, everything I ever heard was like such long words that were, you know, and almost like the more spiritual, the more confused you are at the end of the service, the more spiritual it is. But this guy's like using regular words like humans use, you know? And I'm thinking, why didn't anybody ever tell me this before? I felt like I'd been in church my whole life and been lied to. Like no one told me how great it was to really follow Jesus. And I'm like, this is great. So like, I'm in, right? Bam, I'm giving my life to the Lord. I'm just 16 years old. And um, the end of my junior year in high school, kind of the last few weeks. And I just like, okay, I'm all in. I finally understand it. So I'm on fire for God. I'm going crazy. In fact, I'm reading my Bible. I didn't even know if it was okay to read your Bible outside of church. I thought I might be breaking some rule or something, you know? And I, I thought I had to like secretly do it or I'd get in trouble by the Bible police or something. I don't know, you know? And, uh, and so I'm just reading it. And um, about three weeks 
after I got turned on to the Lord, uh, I come home living with my dad and my stepmom, my other siblings from their marriage, and the door is locked. And, you know, we lived in the country in California. You don't, we don't lock our doors. The door's locked, and my stuff from my bedroom is on the front porch. I'm like, what is going on here? I'm knocking on my own door. That was a weird feeling. Like, did my parents leave and not tell me? Like, did anybody ever fear that? Uh, they moved out of town and didn't let me know. And I'm knocking on the door, and my younger brother, who's bigger than me, opens the door. And I said, bro, why is my stuff on the front porch, and why is the door locked? He said, well, mom, my stepmom, says, you're too much of a Jesus freak. So she said, either she's leaving or you have to leave. Dad chose you. I said, leave? Where am I going? I'm not even out of high school. He goes, I don't know. I just can't let you in. I'm like, what's going on here? Like, interesting, never got mad at me for partying, for being a heathen, but now I'm trying to live pure and I don't know where I'm going. So I put my stuff, like when you're 16, what do you have? Like weights and a clock radio. I mean, that's all I had. I mean, I didn't have anything. And I put him in my La Bamba beat up piece of junk car and I'm driving down the road and I'm crying. Like, God, I'm trying to do the right thing. I'm just, I don't even know where I'm going, where I'm driving to. And I had just as I said, just a few weeks before, I started going to this little church, and, and I had met a couple of guys, college-age guys, that had an apartment. So they said, hey, you can come stay in our couch, you know, couch surf for a little bit. So I'm like, that's cool. And, uh, but I don't know where I'm going to live, how am I going to finish high school. And so anyways, it was coming up on my 17th birthday, just in, in, in a few days, in the summertime there. And um, so uh, my pastor, you know the guy that speaks English? Um, uh, found out the story that I just told you and that I wouldn't have anywhere to go for my birthday. So he invited me to come over to his house to have a birthday dinner with his family. And I thought, wow, pastors live in houses? I mean, I don't know where they went during the week. I thought they went up to their mansion in heaven and then came back to preach or something. I mean, I didn't know. Right? And so I'm like, oh my gosh, how am I going to, I hope I don't really mess up. I mean, I'm just a raw heathen. I mean, I had to watch my mouth and I couldn't use any of the sign language, language I knew. knew. Um, I only knew one single back then. And um, I go there and it was so, you know, that, that it was like weird, you know, the mom and a dad that had been together their whole life. It was weird. Like, and all their kids, they all loved each other. Wow, this is a family. It's weird. And, uh, and they're, and they're, you know, uh, give me, give me some presents and they, uh, all of this. And, and were so kind to me. And, and I thought I did pretty good as far as behaving myself until the next day. I got a call at work. I work construction. And, I, and they just left a message. The message was this. The pastor wants to see you in his office after work today. Now, how many ever went to the principal's office growing up? Now, see, I've been there many times. I knew my way around the principal's office. I'm not afraid of the principal. But the pastor, his office, like where he meets with God, he wants me to come there? What did God tell him about me? I'm so afraid. And so I go there. I'm all dirty. And after work that day, and I met a pastor, and I was shaking. Literally, I was scared. I didn't know what was going to happen. And it was there that that pastor invited me to come live to, with him and his family for my senior year of high school. Now, this guy was a man of great faith because he had three beautiful teenage daughters. And he's inviting me, this rascal heathen that just got on fire for Jesus to come live with him. And um, it, it's going to take an older generation who take risks on behalf of the younger generation 
to see a generation reached. So he took a risk on me. So I come to live with him and his family, changed my whole life. The whole trajectory of my life was changed. And that pastor, that man that took that risk, that man that speaks English when he preaches, he is here this morning. I want to introduce him to you, Pastor Michael Kraft, my father, my spiritual father. This may be the only Sunday morning he's ever heard me speak. He's heard me speak at some other events, but not on a Sunday morning. He lives here in Colorado now. And so that's a little bit about me. Are we friends yet? So with this heritage of, you know, being a heathen and getting on fire for God, I'm like, I don't know what to do, but I know there's a lot of kids like me that feel far away, that feel church is unrelatable. So uh, my wife and I... Um, uh, started this ministry that you can see some of the fruit there and it's all by the, the grace of the Lord and, um, and, and thank, thankful to, to him for that, for all these years of, uh, of, of ministry, literally decades with, in front of millions of young people by the grace of God. And so uh, the last few years, uh, we've taken a different shift. And this morning, I want to take you on a, I want to take you on a journey with me because one of the biggest frustrations that I felt is when we see a big event like this, I mean, literally every weekend for 25 years, I'm in a different city, 33 weekends a year. With, they're not all this big, you know. Some are only 1,000 or 5,000 or 10,000. But 25 years, weekend after weekend after weekend. And one of the biggest questions I got from pastors is, um, how can we do this in our city? How can we do this in our church? Like this meaning ongoing revival where we reach and disciple and build our church by ongoing reaching and discipling the next generation. And I would tell them, I don't know, because I'd never seen it until now. I have. And so this morning, we're gonna, um, I'm, I'm going to take you in a, in, a, in a little bit different direction. Uh, how many of you guys have a good imagination? So I want you to imagine, I know you think, you're in Colorado right now, but imagine you're actually in the Caribbean on the beach. It's about 80 degrees outside. Can you feel it? 82, maybe. You feel the warm sand between your toes. Can you feel it? Are you there with me? And the, and the, the waves are just beckoning you come to me because it's really pleasant water. It's not cold water like California. And the, they're saying, come to me. And you're like, I've got to go. I'm not really a water person, but I've got to go. And so you jump out there and you're frolicking around, having a good time. And before you know it, you're about a mile away from the beach. And you're thinking, oh my gosh, I'm going to get washed out. So you start swimming as fast as you can back to the shore. But as you get closer, you start hearing this crashing of this thundering wave and you look and there's a wall of water just at the, you're at the edge of it, about 80 feet down. And you're thinking, I'm going to, I'm going to get swallowed by this thing. I'm going to get slammed into the sand. So you turn around, you start swimming out away as fast as you can. You're thrashing in the water, but it doesn't do any good. It pulls you under and you start uh, revolving around and around like a, a horizontal tornado and you come up, you gasp for air and it pulls you back down and you gasp for air again. You pulls you back down. One of the times you come up and you gasp for air, you look around and you see some of your family members, your children, extended family, they're doing the same thing and they're getting pulled under. And then it happens again. And again, you come back up and you see some friends from church, some people that you work with. They're doing the same thing and they're gasping for air and getting pulled under and you come up and there they are still doing it. And you realize, 
we're going to be here for a while. Maybe we should plan to have lunch up here. Maybe we should have dinner up here. Welcome to our new norm. People keep wondering, when is the world going to calm down? When? You know, once the pandemic's over, what, what, what will be the new norm? The new norm is this. Increasing change at a quicker velocity. A change of all kinds. Imagine it's not just a pandemic. That, remember how fast that was? Like one day somebody, hey, there's a, this, this thing, this pandemic, this disease. All of a sudden, the next day, everybody has masks on. How'd that happen so quick? Everywhere. All of a sudden, you couldn't do this, and you couldn't do that, and you couldn't go here, and you couldn't go just both so fast. Imagine 10 pandemics at once converging. Not all medical. One's a war, and one's a economic pandemic, and one's a business pandemic. One's a governmental pandemic, and they're all converging. All this change, all converging on us. This is our opportunity as followers of Christ to say, you know what? While the world is thrashing about in all, trying to make sense of all the changes, what if we were the ones, the sons and daughters of Issachar, that says in scripture that they understood the, the times that Israel lived in and they knew what Israel should do? What if we were those people right now? That we're not threatened, we're not overwhelmed, we're not submerged, we're not panicking. We're actually the ones that are composed because we know who holds our future. And we're the one rescuing people that are confused and that are dismayed and whose lives are falling apart because of this. So the last five years I've spent studying the trends, getting a, uh, an advanced degree on trends around the world, trends in America, trends around the world that are affecting the world and that are going to affect the world. All these, these waves of change that we can feel some of the effects of, but there's a lot more that are in the process that we haven't felt the effect of yet. And asking the question, what does it mean for the church? What does it mean for Christians? What does it mean for followers of Christ when all the technology, all the different kinds of wars and economic changes and Bitcoin, whatever, the stock market, all the different, all those trends converge. What do we do? And then I found about 10 or 12 churches around the world that in the midst of all these trends that are already hammering the church, they're thriving. They're not just surviving. They're like a different DNA of a church. And they look the same. They got screens and they got seats and they got microphones, but the operating system's different. They figured out how to thrive in the midst of all the waves of change. And I did my dissertation on, on these trends and these churches and what are the best practices? What are they all doing that's similar? What are the principles behind them? And maybe we could teach them to churches in America and around the world so that we can learn from each other the best practices. I'm excited to be able to spend uh, tomorrow with your pastor, Michael, and the whole team here, the, the, the staff here, to talk about what are these best practices. In fact, I, I put a bunch of them in th this, my dissertation, and this is uh, it turned into a book called Faith at the Speed of Light. And um, any of, if, if any of you are like really geeky and want to learn about what trends are coming, this book is packed full of them, plus the 10 um, uh, or 12 case studies of these churches, their stories from all over the world. So we brought a few of these. You can, you can get in the back if you're interested in that. But this is our job, and this is what we're going to do today, is learn how to surf the wave of change. How many of you guys are surfers? Well, we're going to teach you how to surf today, okay? Um, the waves of change. Now, if you'll see this, uh, where the arrow is right there, that's a guy named Rodrigo from Brazil. And uh, he's right there. 
and he's surfing this 80-foot wall of water. And uh, I know it looks pretty scary, but reality, what we're living in is much scarier than this. What if we're these followers of Christ that are surfing, the, that we know change is happening for everybody, even this week as this all unfolded in Ukraine. But to not be flustered, not, to, not just to be um, uh, uh, surviving, but thriving and, and rescuing people while we're doing this. One of the things we found in these churches all over the world that are thriving, the church isn't just thriving, but the people in the church are thriving. This is what they did. The church focuses on reaching and discipling those most likely to follow Christ. They create a massive pipeline of young adults emerging as a torrent of firebrands of faith, resulting in a multi-generational church. So this is what they do. They focus. A lot of churches don't focus. There's too many things going on. But these guys focus on just two things, reaching and discipling those most likely to come to Christ. We're going to unpack that all day tomorrow. But this morning, I want to talk about the discipling part. Discipling is this word that, and I know your pastor, uh, uh, Michael, has been through a huge discipleship journey on his own. So you guys know what it means. But it means, but most churches in America aren't really sure what that word means. Eh, isn't that the first, like, um, four weeks after you get saved, you take a discipleship class, and then you're discipled, right? And we, it's one of those kind of spiritual words we throw out there, and they're kind of throwaway words because we don't really unpack them much. So we're going to talk about that this morning. What does a disciple actually do? And we're going to read the, these words of Jesus and then pray and then um, see if the Lord will give us all some hints on what we can do to be better disciples. Matthew seven twenty four. Everyone who hears my teaching and applies it to his life can be compared to a wise man who built his house on an unshakable foundation. And when the rains fell, the flood came with fierce winds beating upon his house. It stood firm because of his strong foundation. But everyone who hears my teaching and does not apply it to his life can be compared to a foolish man who built his house on the sand. When it rained and rained and the flood came with wind and waves beating upon his house, it collapsed and was swept away. So Lord Jesus, this morning we're asking for you to just come. Take whatever words may come from my mouth and, and make them come alive in our hearts that we might be those that build our house on your, on your rock and not on the sand. In the midst of storms and tidal waves of change, we have stability because we built our life on you. In Jesus' name, amen. So disciples in the making, because this is what we are. We're all in process. So one of our, our challenges, I think, in our way of thinking about Christianity in America is to think, come on, I prayed the prayer, I got saved, leave me alone. And we don't think about we're on our way somewhere except to heaven one day. But Jesus was always in the mode of making disciples, as you see. We're going to talk about six habits or six, uh, you can say six verbs, six things that uh, disciples do. Now, remember the big command, go ye therefore and make converts. Do you remember that command? Is that what he said? We use that a lot, right? Then we go, how many got converted? Converts. How many got born again? How many got saved? We, we just use these words interchangeably. He said, go and make disciples. And, um, you know, not everybody who calls himself a Christian is actually a disciple. You know, um, the, 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 I'm not judging their heart or whether they love the Lord. There's different levels and degrees of love. They may have not have been explained what it means to really be a follower of Christ. 
they just kind of know they need to be forgiven and they feel bad about their sins. But Jesus said over and over again, he talked about disciples. In fact, there's times in the gospels where he said, Jesus spoke to the crowd and to the disciples. In other words, any group of people, any given group, there are those that are just crowd. They come for the fish, the loaves, the entertainment, cool worship, parables, entertainment like that. And then there are disciples. And the disciples, you could tell, they weren't like secret handshake or whatever, like they, that you could tell because they stayed afterwards and asked questions. Then they hung out and they followed him. Then they listened again to the, maybe the same parable and asked more questions and asked more questions and asked more questions. They're disciples, they're followers. And today, we have a lot of people, especially in, I would say, American Christianity, where we have a lot of people that, um, that have prayed a prayer, did the thing that the preacher told them to do, but they're kind of passive in their faith. They're passive pew-sitters. And so we know, we hear things like, we don't want the church to be a mile wide and an inch deep. Then the church gets two miles wide, it's still an inch deep, and we all celebrate. Then it gets 10 miles wide, and it's still an inch deep, we still celebrate. And we're like, at least we're doing half of it, right? We're getting it wider, but we don't know what to do with the deeper part. Like, yeah, it's important, and we kind of don't know what to do. But if you look over and over again, as the disciples were reaching more people, they were wooing them to be disciples. Like Jesus, when he spoke to the crowd, he's like, I don't want you to just stay in the crowd. I want you to be a disciple. He's kind of wooing them. I don't want you to stay just an observer. Become a disciple. So these guys, you'll see it over and over again, Acts 6, in those days when the number of disciples was increasing. So these guys were increasing, but they weren't just getting people to lift their hand, pray, pray, I don't want to embarrass you, I'll go home. Wasn't that? Wasn't like an auction at the end of a service? We've all seen those before, right? See that hand over there, over there? Sounds like an auction. They weren't doing that. They were inviting people to become disciples. Watch this one, um, verse uh, seven there, same chapter. So the word of God spread, and the number of disciples in Jerusalem grew rapidly, increased rapidly. So uh, you can see it uh, over and over again. Uh, the 1421 there says, and they preached the gospel in that city and won a large number of disciples. They're trying to win people, but they're trying to win them to become disciples. Not just somebody who pays a quick prayer of forgiveness. We need forgiveness. But Jesus wants to forgive and make disciples. So let's unpack. What does that really mean? What's a dis this discipleship path we're supposed to be on? I'm just going to give you as much as I can here today. Give me, first, let me give, give you a definition. And you can take a picture of this with your brain if you want. A lot of different de definitions. I like this one of disciple. Uh, it's a lifelong pursuit. How long is the pursuit? Come on, you got to talk back to me. How long is the pursuit? That means it's not a class. Like these guys that just graduated, they're disciples. It's not over. It's just beginning, right? It's a lifelong pursuit of becoming more like Jesus by learning from him and experiencing his reality. By learning from him and experiencing his reality. Now, um, uh, sometimes we get the idea discipleship is just learn, 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 learn. Well, we need to learn for sure. But it's not just learning for the sake of brain, being a brainiac or an egghead about God. Sometimes people that know a lot can actually make people that don't love God even matter because others oh, ready for a fight. It's learning and then implementing and becoming more like him so that people are, are, are like, Jealous, like, what do you have that I don't have? What, what, what do you know that I don't know? So what does a disciple actually do? So I'll, I'll review the, the, the six with you. I'm going to um, 
on, on the first service, I went through the first three, so I'm not going to totally go through them again. I'm going to go through the last three. If you want the details about the first three, you can go listen to the first service. But followers, if you're a disciple, you're a follower of Christ. And there's a, there's a big difference between somebody who just prayed a prayer and somebody who's a follower of Christ. I learned early on, about five or seven years into doing these big events that you saw, um, to, to take very carefully and very seriously what I'm asking people to do when I'm talking about them getting connected to the Lord. Not just pray a quick, cheap prayer, not just even to ask forgiveness, but become a follower of Christ. I stopped. Are you ready for this? This might, this might jack with your brain a little bit. I stopped asking people to become Christians. Jesus never asked anybody to become a Christian. We do it all the time. Do you want to be a Christian? The word Christian means little Christ, right? That's what the guys in Antioch said when they saw people that were following Jesus so close. They said, is that Peter? No. Oh, no, is that Jesus? No, that's Peter. Sure, looking like Jesus. He's following so closely to his life. Is that Jesus? No, that's John. Sure, following in his lifestyle, looking a lot like Christ. Is that Christ? No, that's Phoebe over there. That's Mary over there. We're sure acting like Jesus around here. Let's give all these people acting like Jesus that are following his lifestyle, let's give them a nickname. Let's call them Little Christ. They were followers. Followed his words, his ways, his lifestyle. So, uh, uh, so what, what do we do as disciples? Well, we follow him. And uh, number two is we, uh, we, we seek him. We're seekers. Seek first the kingdom of God. How remember that one? That's one of the famous, that's like one of the all-time uh, favorite, famous verses in the Bible, seek first the kingdom of God. And we get so busy seeking things. How many ever lost your keys and you went crazy seeking to find them? Like you out of your mind, like I have to because I have an appointment. How many ever lost your phone? And you're like, my whole life, I just lost my whole life. How many lost your phone and you went crazy trying to find it? You got everybody on the hunt. How many ever lost your phone and it was in your hand while you lost it? Okay, we have a whole different ministry section for you guys, right? We've probably all done it. But seeking, what if we sought the kingdom of God? And I don't have time to unpack what that might mean to really seek first the kingdom where he is the king of your environment. But what if we were seekers like that, like we are when we're, we've lost our car keys or our phone? The third th the verb we do here is, is renewing. That is, we're constantly renewing or reshaping the way that we think. Now, renewing and transforming are very connected, so we're going to talk about a little bit about the, the renewing part. The renewing, imagine you're born in a prison, and you were always thought to, uh, to, to think like a prisoner. And somebody came and told you, hey, you get to get out, but your whole life you still thought you were in prison. That's how a lot of Christians live. So there's a story of back during World War II, there's two POW camps that the Germans were in charge of. One was for Americans, one was for English. And they were right next to each other, but they tried to keep the English and the Americans separate. So they, 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 had, they each had a kind of a they, they allowed, the Germans allowed for one person to be like a, a chaplain from each side. And each day they would let the chaplains talk for a few minutes and then go back to their respective prison. They'd meet at the, at the fence. But they had guards listening to everything they said. So the Americans and the English both chose a Gaelic, somebody from Scotland, 
that spoke a Gaelic language so that when they would talk to each other, that the guards couldn't understand them because the guards understood English and German and French, and th- but they didn't understand Gaelic. So they would talk and they would go back and you know, share with their fellow prisoners what was going on. Well, one day the Americans had figured out a way to put a ham radio together in their camp and they found out that the war was over. So the, the Gaelic chaplain went to the other Gaelic chaplain and told him, guess what? The war is over. So the German guards did not know it yet. So the Gaelic chaplain went to the heirs of the English people uh, that were in the prison and told them, guess what? The war is over. And all of a sudden, this huge celebration broke out and dancing and singing. And the guards were out of their mind. Like, what are these people doing? Why are they so happy? And then it happened for a day. It happened for a second day, dancing and singing. They're being nice to the guards and all of the. And finally, the third, third day, it's the same thing is going on. The guards are, what happened? And the fourth day they woke up, guards were gone. All the gates were open. See, what had happened is these guys in prison got good news. And they started living like they, the good news was true, even though the doors were still shut. It looked like they were still in prison, but in their mind, they were not in prison anymore. Are you following me? This is what we have, the good news of the gospel. It might look like we're in a prison. Because, I mean, it's a very exotic prison, right? Because, you know, we have Instagram, and we got Facebook, and our, it's, it's a prison of, if I don't look like this, I'm not worthy. If I don't live like this, I'm not worthy of a human. If I don't drive this kind of car, it's a, it's a different kind of prison, right? And so we have uh, prison kind of uh, uh, norms, the way prisoners think has actually set in. So that even though we are to, we've been set free too often people that call themselves Christians still live like prisoners because their mind is not renewed. They're not thinking like a free man or a free woman. So they're like the, the people that came out of Israel that Moses let out and they wanted to go back. They were still thinking like slaves, like, let us go back to Pharaoh. We had it better there. People start longing for the world because they're still living in prison in their mind. So I don't have time to keep doing that, but I will tell you, but what I learned from these churches around the world is they got, when they reach and disciple, they get their people that come to Christ, become, that become followers on a, such a radical deep dive in their discipleship. It's like, it's like drinking Red Bull for your faith for five years, like this, they're chugging. Okay, maybe you don't like that metaphor. It's like human growth hormones. You're just, or maybe, uh, how many of you are like caffeine people? Okay, so you're doing, uh, you know, super, super uh, shot lattes like 10 times an hour like this in their faith. In fact, one of the pastors told me, he goes, Ron, when someone comes to Christ in my church, the first two years is like, a, uh, is like going to a full-time youth camp for two years. That's how intense it is. Imagine instead of waiting 40 years for your mind to get renewed, it happened in three years. And the whole rest of your life, you benefit from that. And so does everybody else. Are you following me here? It's like something I'd never seen before in my whole life. I saw it first in Singapore. Then I saw it in Philippines. Then I saw it in Ghana, Africa. And I saw it in Bogota, Colombia. And I saw it in Moscow, Russia. And so all of these churches use this growth this discipleship growth path that uh, is divided up into trimesters. Each trimester is 12 weeks and then 12 weeks and then 12 weeks and then 12. Some have like 10, 15, 12 weeks trimesters. Yeah. Like they're serious about growth. 
This is not, hey, just come to church and learn as much as you can. No, they're like, come to church, of course, but we're going on a deep dive here. So we took some of uh, the things that we'd used over the years to help youth grow and turned them into trimesters for Americans, just in case there's anybody that wants to have Red Bull for their faith in America or um, double shot lattes for your faith. So, um, so this is a, a series called Pathway to Freedom. And the first trimester, I actually happened to bring it today. Uh, there's some out there. And this is, I'm, I'm just explain because some people, I, I want to demystify. What does it mean to be a do- disciple? I mean, just demystify. This is not a book. It looks like a book, but it's not. It's disguised as a book. It's a tool. It's a tool to make you a freak for the rest of your life. It's something to do every day in your quiet time for, for, uh, for 12 weeks. And the first trimester is how Jesus impacts every part of my life. It's not learning a bunch of, um, how do I convince somebody that Jesus is the Son of God? That's important. We'll get to that. But we all need to understand how Jesus helps us in the very practical areas of our life, right? So, after uh, you can see, and we, we base this on the best practice of what we found most impacted lives from all the big events we did is uh, books that help people connect with Jesus every day, help them dig down into here, and help them connect with other people. So each day, you can see there's scriptures to read, there's stuff to write down. It's not just reading. It's only a few pages a day, and then there's action steps. And at the end of a week, watch this, there's discussion questions. Because you're doing it, not by yourself. You're doing it with your spouse. You're doing it with one of your kids. You're doing it with some other friends. Doing it in a small group. And so at the end of the week, we're all discussing, what did the Lord speak to you in that day? What did you write down on that day? How can we pray for each other? Are you following me? You're not doing this alone. We're going together. People say, how do I disciple somebody? You don't sit down and go, I want to teach you all the wisdom I have. That's not what you do. We go on a journey together. We're going to grow together. Some of you are wondering how to disciple your kids. Here's a tool. It's not a book. It's a tool. So how do we uh, think about this next one, transforming? Renewing and transforming are connected here. Watch this. Remember this verse? Romans 12, we all know this verse. This is the Passion Translation. So stop imitating the ideals and opinions of the culture around you, but be inwardly transformed by the Holy Spirit through a total reformation of how you think. Remember that? Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. So renewing and transforming are really connected. You've got to have the renewing. I went into great depth in service one, so you can go listen to that if you want. But let's talk about the transforming. See, transforming is this thing that... Jesus wants them to do not just the day we come to Christ, but an ongoing transform and then more transformation and then more transformation and then more transformation. Can I have an amen, somebody? And it's not just when you get a really good preacher and he gives a good altar call. He wants us to be transformed to become more and more like him. Now, interesting how the word transform is be transformed. It's a commandment, but we can't transform ourselves. It's almost like a paradox, right? He says, you got to be transformed, be transformed. But you can't transform yourself, but you can start the process. Let's talk about what that process looks like. Jesus commented on this through various different uh, parables and scriptures and things that got written down. Watch this one. Matthew 12, 22. You must determine if a tree is a good or rotten. You can recognize a good tree by their delicious fruit. If you find rotten fruit, you can be certain that 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 tree is rotten. The fruit defines the tree. So remember, we're talking about how do we build our house on the rock? We become disciples. One of the ways of of becoming an ongoing disciple is the transformation. So Jesus is saying here, it's like this. Tree's got fruit. How stupid would it be to go up to a tree and go, you got bad fruit. 
Why don't you have some good fruit? What's wrong with you? That's what a lot of people hear when they hear about Christianity. Why don't you love more? Why don't you be more kind? You should be more like Jesus. And it's just a bunch of stuff. You got to just put fruit on that tree. Jesus saying, no. If you got bad fruit, go down to the root and figure out what's going on with the root. Because if you get the root right, the good fruit will come naturally. So Jesus is constantly asking us as humans, as followers of Christ, what part of us needs to be transformed? What, where do our roots need some tweaking? Maybe we need to cut that one off and grow a new root this way. What are our roots in right now that naturally produce? I'm afraid that too much of Christianity has become behavior modification and not transformation. Do this good thing. Do that good thing. Do this good thing. Do that good thing. It actually becomes a whole life. Are you ready for this? This hurts. Of sin management. We think that's what our whole job is. Manage so I don't get too sinful in my life and then I can go to heaven. This is a journey of getting transformed to become more like Jesus. So when you get transformed, what the godly thing that we do is the natural thing that we do. So, for, so think of the, the idea of gravity. Like, I've known since I was little, gravity is real. So when I get close to this stage, probably none of you are thinking, oh no, he's going to fall. You're not thinking that because you know it's real. You know I know it's real and I'm not going to crash. Because when you know, my mind, my, my neural pathways have been trained. Gravity's real. I know it's real. So I know if I just accidentally step off, which I did a few times during those, some of those big events and crashed onto the floor, um, uh, I, it will hurt. If I get close to a cliff, no one has to say, please run, don't get too close, don't get too close, no because I know it's real. So what if we were so transformed, our roots, that is our inner thoughts, our inner life, what we build our life on is so transformed that it affects our behavior. So we naturally don't lust. We naturally don't lie when there's a given opportunity. We naturally don't steal something when it would be easy and no one would even know. Are you following me? So it's not just behavior modification. It's not sin management. It's a process of ongoing transformation after transformation. So I don't have to have people tell me all the time, remember, don't go near cliffs. Remember, don't put your hand in the fire. I know that already. I'm not going to go burn myself. Too often, when we hear the Great Commission, we hear Jesus says, go ye therefore and make disciples. And he says, teaching them to obey my commandments. What we think he's saying is teaching them they ought to obey. And so our list, our, our idea of Christianity becomes a list. Things of, I ought to do. And we always feel bad about it because we know there's a lot of things I ought to do that I'm not doing. And it's a long list. And when the pastor comes and preaches on something, that's something down there. It gets put to the top of the list. It moves everything else down. So our whole life, Christian life becomes the conveyor belt of where do we put the things that we ought to do? That is not the way he intended us to live. He wants us to be transformed so that the fruit that comes out of us, the fruit of the spirit, is the normal and the natural thing that comes out of us. Instead of the things we ought to do, it ought to be like, no, you can do this. The point is this. He cares about our character. He cares about our roots, who we are when nobody sees. What are we putting our roots down into that transform us? So how, uh, how, how what, what, what practically, what practical thing could we do? So could I ask anybody here, um, anybody here ever run a marathon? Anybody? Anybody here think today that you're in good enough shape you could leave this auditorium today and run a marathon? Let me see your hand. 
Anybody? Maybe. Anybody here think, well, if I left here and ran a marathon, it wouldn't be easy, but I'd push really, really hard. Just maybe I could make it. Let me see your hand if that's you. Okay. How many think if you trained for three or four months every day and got more and more intense each day, at the end of, say, four months, you could probably run a marathon? Let me see. So isn't that interesting? So training, we know is important, whether it's a marathon or a piano or anything we want to do. We know there's a component. If you train, you can master something. So spiritually, though, we think, no, if I just try harder, I can love people better. If I just try harder, I can stop this sinning or stop lying or stop doing this or be like that. You know, and we just try harder. We overestimate what we can do spiritually from trying and underestimate what we can do physically from trying. So what if we put ourselves into training? First Timothy talks about this. Have nothing to do with godless myths of old wives' tale, but train yourself. Somebody say train yourself. Train yourself to be godly. It doesn't happen overnight. It doesn't happen accidentally. Abracadabra, now you're anointed, you'll never sin again. Never, it doesn't happen that way. But if, what, what if we were just like we were training for a marathon, we were training ourselves in godliness? How would we do that? Well, some of the same principles physically. I love what, um, what, what Paul says here. He's at the end of his rope. Please take this from me. Please take this, this thorn in my flesh. And the Lord says, my grace is sufficient for you. In other words, the word grace is dunamis. It's power. It's not just what you need when you get saved. It's what you need to live every day. It's where we get our word dynamite, dunamis. He says, my dunamis, my power is sufficient for you. And uh, here's another way. Uh, when, when talking about growing in grace, Second Peter, but continue to grow and increase in God's grace. Grow in grace and intimacy. We don't need to grow in grace that we needed from the cross when we first came to Christ. We need to grow in how we use grace today. Grace is the fuel that we need to live right now, today. There's an author that died about 10 years ago named Dallas Willard. He says, grace, Christians burn grace like a 747 burns fuel. You burn way more grace living day to day than just when you first came to Christ. Grace is dunamis. Grace is power. So when you start seeing that word grace in scripture, it's not just grow in grace. Like what happened when I first came to Christ? That's not what he's talking about. Grow in grace because you got to live today. You got to have some jet fuel for your heart, for your spirit, man. Grace is power, power to live each moment, power to overcome. So how, how does this activate it? Let me just, just give you something real simple. How do you activate this transformation? Pick something simple. Find something, some command that seems like it's easy and just do it. Just do it. Like, here's one. Jesus said, let your yes be yes and your no be no. Simple, right? So, like, just try it this week. This week, when I say something, I'm going to do it. If I say I'm not, I'm not. If I say I'm going to be there on time, I'm going to do it. If I say I'm going to pray for somebody, I'm going to do it. Don't start with huge things. Just yes be yes and your no be no. And then... As soon as you do that, you say, I'm going to pray for somebody, and you're tempted to get, just get busy with your day. Wait a minute. I said I was going to pray. I'm going to stop right now and do it. I said I was going to be there at 7, but, but if I just stopped and get gas on the way, that no, I'm going to be there at 7. I'm going to do what I said I was going to do. So when you, when you take a small step, somebody say small step. Just a small step of obedience. What happens? It's like you light a fuse. Like, yes, I'm going to do that. And you don't know how long the fuse is. It might be an inch. Might be a mile. 
You don't know how long that fuse will burn, but finally what will happen is you'll have an explosion of energy on the inside of you. This dunamis, like dynamite, it'll explode in you because when you say yes and you keep saying yes and you do what you say you're going to do and your no is your no, the fuse is burning and, and the, the only way I can describe it is now you've got so much power to always keep your word, to always be on time. People think that's just who you are. It's because you've been transformed. You've had grace on the inside because you just said yes to a small thing. So you've had that transformation. One of the things I pray regularly, Lord, what part of me do you want to transform now? Because I know there's something. You know, if you can't think of something, just ask some of your family members. They might have an idea. <laughs> so we're constantly following, we're seeking, we're renewing, changing our neural pathways to think more like reality, like prisoners that have been actually set free. We're transforming. The next one here is, this is what we do as followers of Christ, as disciples, is we're connecting. Now, scripture has a lot to say about how, do, how are we to connect with other human beings. There's principles. Dear friend will love you no matter what. A friend loves at all times. We know that, right? Um, all through the uh, Proverbs, there's tons like a, a, a brother's born for adversity, the kiss uh, of a friend, uh, you know, is, is kindness. Um, speak honestly is a sign of true friendship. There's all kinds of pr principles. In other words, this is how human relationships were meant to be done. You can try to have a good friendship, but if you have them the way God said, it'd be better. Try to have a good marriage, but you have it the way God said, it'd be better. So, friends, how do we connect? Usually it's around proximity. Who I sit next to in math, who I work next to, I have a common interest with. They're accidental friendships. We work next to each other. We have the same interests. We, oh, we like the same ball team. And all of a sudden, we find ourselves hanging out with those people. Connecting, though, in the things of God is we, we've got to be more intentional. We have to find people and in, insert them in our life or f um, find ourselves, insert ourselves in their orbit so we can become the kind of people we want to be. Have you ever heard this? You become... Like, just like the top five people you spend time with. You ever heard that? So if you're smarter than everybody around you, you won't get any smarter. If you're godlier than everybody around you, you won't, be any God, you won't get any godlier. Are you following me? So think about it like this. If you upgrade your social circle, you upgrade your life. Isn't that judgmental? Well, how about this? If you want to thrive, you have to think smart, be intentional. So think about it like this. So Paul had three different kinds of relationships. He had a Barnabas, he had Silas, he had a Timothy. So Barnabas is, of course, his mentor. So Barnabas is the guy that went and rescued him when none of the other Christians want to have anything to do with him. He mentors him. He brings them back to the disciples and like, hey, he's a good guy in his whole life. They had a partnership. They had a mentorship. So we all need a Barnabas. We all need somebody that we can look up to, somebody that we can submit to, somebody that can speak into our life and say, you know what? You're jacked up in this area. And you're like, you're right. I'm so sorry. That, we need a Barnabas in our life. And then he, uh, we need a Silas in our life. His Silas was him and Silas were kind of like, they were in a posse together. They liked to hang out. They'd go to, they'd have a lot of fun. Like they'd go into village, preach the gospel, get thrown in jail, sing songs. It's totally cool. And then they'd go to another village. The same thing would happen. They'd go to jail together. The right kind of jail for the right reason, right? And um, so you gotta, have, you gotta have those kind of relationships. And then he had Timothy's. Timothy's were younger. People that he could mentor, people he could pour into. 
So we all need a balance of, the, of these different types of relationships in our life. Now, there's some people, they only want Barnabases in their life. I just want spiritual mentors all around me. Well, that's not healthy and that's not wholesome. It's not. If I could just spend all day with Pastor Michael, I know I'd be so godly. You know, well, that's probably true, except you need more than just a bunch of mentors around you. We need mentors. We need people that can speak into our life, maybe say things to us that are uncomfortable. Okay. So, um, but it's not just that. You know, some people get really twerked. I just, I just want to go near the spiritual leaders and that's all I want to be around. Well, you know, maybe you need to be a normal person, you know, and like learn to read your own Bible and develop some Silas's. Because what happens is people like to think, like if I hang around all these people that are way, way, you know, spiritual, then I'm kind of in their camp too. And it's kind of a jacked up perception of themselves. They're insecure. So we all need Silas's people that are kind of on our same level, spiritual maturity, going through life together, we can share our life with, we can care about, we can pray for each other, be there for each other's struggles. And we all need Timothys. So these are people that we're mentoring, people that we're discipling, people that we say, hey, I got a book, let's go through it together. That's why we tell people, you know, you can get one, but if you get two, you get them cheaper because we want you to go through it with people, with people. So we have to find a Timothy. The problem is this, we feel a little intimidated, like, who could I minister to? No, no, oh, no one's going to come up to you and say, please minister to me. But people are hurting everywhere. Hurting people want people to help them. And so what happens, watch this. Have you ever heard this happen? What happens to so-and-so? They were in church. They were receiving. They were growing. They were there every time the doors opened, and all of a sudden, they're gone. Maybe what happened is they became like the Dead Sea. The Dead Sea is a big body of water in Israel that only has a, the Jordan River running into it. It has no river running out. And as a result, nothing can live in the Dead Sea. No plant life, no fish, nothing. It's the Dead Sea for a reason. It's called that. A lot of Christians become like the Dead Sea because they're receiving, receiving, receiving podcasts and this and that. I'm all for that. But they're not giving. They're not pouring out. And normal Christianity was about not just receiving, but there's a lot of hurting people who need something. And if we're not pouring out, if we don't have a river running out of us, we get dead real quick. We're like, yeah, I heard that sermon before. And we're like judgmental about everything we ever hear. You know, yeah, yeah, yeah. We're not around hurting, hurting people enough. So we need a balance of the kind of people that we surround ourselves with. Think about it like this. I, lo I love how wolves function because disciples are connectors. So wolves, they hang out in a pack and they, they protect each other. They can do more than just what one wolf can do. If one wolf gets by himself, he might get eaten by a bear. But a wolf pack stays together. That's what the Lord wants us to do. Stay connected. We got each other's backs. We're looking out for each other. Hey, there's a temptation. There's a person. There's a thing that's coming your way. We're going through life together. Or here's another picture of nature. Uh, I don't know if you've ever heard of the muskox. These guys, these live in the wild. And when, they, when they're threatened, they all get in a circle like this. And they put the weak ones of the herd and the babies in the center. And they don't let any polar bears or anything that's threatening them let the little ones get hurt. They protect the weak ones in their tribe. This is a picture of connecting. You know, um, when I first came to Christ, I think um, the, this concept of connecting like small groups and let's all do this together, it, becomes a, it can get a little funky because you're like, well, are we like, who are we accountable to? What about this? What if we're just accountable to each other? 
Like we're all going after Christ. We're all learning from the Lord. Let's talk about, let's pray for each other. What, what do you, area do you want to really grow in? And then we say, hey, did you do that? Did you do what you said you wanted to do? How were you six months ago? Are you better than you were in that area? We're just, we're, we're looking out for each other. Instead of stomping on our wounded, letting the enemy take apart our, our wounded. And I think what, what happens so much with this small group thing and discipleship uh, kind of pathway gets a little janky. And I think it gets janky because most leaders were never discipled. Most pastors were not. I know your pastor was, but most were not. Most get on fire and start reading their Bible, go crazy and go crazy. And then they, become, they go to Bible school and become a pastor. And they think, watch this. They think if somebody really gets a hold of God, you don't need no discipleship. I didn't need it. They don't either. How about this? Those, are, those guys, those women are the exception to the rule. The way the, it was meant to be done is like this. We all grab arms and let's go together. How, how could those early Christians have made it through all the persecution if they weren't grabbing arms and following Jesus together? So following, seeking, renewing, transforming, connecting, and the very last one is engaging. And I know you guys are really good at this, but this is engaging really engaging the Lord. You know, sometimes our following of Jesus, our connecting to the Lord becomes a cerebral thing. Oh yes, I'm, I got a relationship with the Lord. It's like a mental relationship. You have a relationship with the Lord? Yes, I have a relationship with the Lord. You have a relationship. Like we talk about it like super spiritual with our voice inflections and stuff, but watch even Jesus himself. Very early, it says, Mark 1, in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, went off to a solitary place where he prayed. So if Jesus got up and he had to pray to really engage with his father. How much more do we? One day Jesus was praying in Luke 11 in a certain place. When he'd finished, his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray. So imagine they keep waking up I'm like, where did that guy go? He's gone. So like they're stepping over. Jesus, Jesus had left, you know, Peter's snoring, John snoring. He's left. He snuck out. He's off. And they wake up. Like, Where'd that guy go? Where'd he go again? And finally, when they found him, they said, Teach us to do what you keep doing every time you snake off. What are you, what's all the snaking off about? They could ask him anything, how to walk on water, how to do miracles. They said, teach us to pray. Teach us to do that thing. So let me just give you a couple thoughts about this and we'll pray together and close. I think there's kind of levels of engagement or intimacy that people have with the Lord. I, I, I would say the first level is a non-conscious relationship. Sort of like, yeah, I got a relationship, but it's more like, like a mental ascent. Too much of what we call Christianity is just a mental ascent. Like, I agree that thing that you told me to agree to. But whether you actually believe it or not. It's sort of like that relationship you have with your dog. How many of you guys have a dog? How many of you guys, I want to ask how many have cats. We don't really want to go there. But um, <laughs> how many of you say you have a relationship with your dog? Yes. How many say you love your dog? How many say your dog loves you back? Okay. How many of your dogs help you with your taxes? <laughs> so, yeah. And if your hand just went up, we have another ministry session for you. You know, like. how many of your, your dog gave you some counseling after you poured out your heart and cried? No, they may have licked your tears, but they didn't give you any counseling, but you felt better. So it's a relationship, but it's a non-conscious relationship. It's like, you know, your dog loves you. You love your dog, but it's non-conscious. And so you come home from work. Your dog's so happy. 
<laughs> just they're wagging their tail. Every time they act like they haven't seen you in a year. It's been like 10 minutes. Like, and they're all like, it's, it's a relationship. It's non-conscious, though. I'm, sometimes I wonder if this is how people, the kind of relationship they have with the Lord. Don't get mad at me now. They come to worship. Got a goosebump. Whoa, that's awesome. But they haven't really had much interaction. They just felt the presence. That's good, but that's just the beginning. Because he doesn't want just us to feel his presence. He wants to have a conscious relationship with us. So there's a non-conscious sort of relationship. The next level, which I would call a semi-conscious, which is sort of a, maybe you have experienced this if you have a teenager that has a phone and you walk into the room and you're trying to have a conversation. And after five times repeating the same question, yeah, sure, yeah, yeah. It's, it's semi-conscious relationship. Um, think about this. Um, when my oldest daughter, Hannah, was, I don't know, 13 or 14 months, I don't remember. I was rocking her to sleep. You know, everybody has a little ritual when they put their babies down. I'm rocking her to sleep, and she didn't really talk yet, you know, but, um, you know, she, uh, she, she was there, and, you know, babies, at first, they don't know anything. They don't, they're, they're like, they don't know what words mean and all that, but at some point, they start understanding what words mean. So I'm rocking her to sleep one night. I got done singing to her, telling her stories, and um, I said, Papa loves Hannah. And then I said, does Hannah love Papa? And she nodded her head. I said, yes, we have contact. My baby just communicated to me, she loves me. And I went downstairs and I told my wife, guess what, Hannah loves me more than you. But she loved me, she nodded her head. And I was so excited. Now, my daughter's in her 30s right now. If she was still just giving me a head nod, I'd be like, something's wrong. And I think sometimes what happens is we get a semi-conscious relationship with the Lord. Like we felt an impression. The Lord spoke something to us. He affirmed something. And we're like, yes! And, and then we don't seek him real deeply for another year. Because we got a semi-conscious glimpse into his voice and then we stop. That's just this is another stepping stone towards what he really wants. Um. So, and, and finally, um, uh, I'll, go to, I'll go to the last one here. I, I feel like that semi-conscious things happens because we live in such a distracted world. Yeah. Like our focus is all over the place. God's just saying, hey, if you just focus on me for a second, I'll take you from semi-conscious to what I believe he really wants is fully conscious. Um, one of the few things we can control is our focus. What we look at, what we listen to, and so finally, this fully conscious relationship, and let me just give you a couple thoughts and then we'll pray. Fully conscious, I believe, is where the Lord is taking us, where he wants to take us, where he wants us to live. This fully conscious where he's hearing us, we're hearing him, we're walking with him, and it's not just a cerebral thing, it's, it's reality. So I love this whole passage, and I'm not going to take a, uh, the time to read it, but this is in John chapter 20, after Jesus had died, He's been buried. Now, this is Sunday. Watch what happens here. Mary goes to the tomb. Remember, the, the women went to the tomb. And you see what happens in verse 2. She sees the tomb is empty. She runs back to Peter and the rest of the guys. And, they, and the first thing she says is, they've taken his body. 
So then she comes back. They run back with her. They, Peter and John see. They leave. And then she sees two angels sitting in there. And she says to them, look at that, verse 13. They said, why are you crying? The angel said to her, they have taken away my Lord. I don't know where they've laid him. So Mary is talking to angels sitting in the tomb where Jesus was and his clothes are still there. And they, she says, they've taken his body. And then she's on her way out. She's crying again. Verse 15, dear woman, why are you crying? Who are you looking for? Mary answered, thinking he, he was only the gardener. Sir, have you taken his body somewhere? Please tell me and I will go. She's talking to Jesus. She doesn't realize it's Jesus. And she says to Jesus, do you know where they've taken your body? So think about this. She'd been around. She heard Jesus talk about it again and again. I'm going to die. I'm going to rise in three days. I'm going to die. I'm going to rise in three days. I'm going to die. I'm going to rise in three days. Stay in Jerusalem. Wait for me. I'm going to rise. In three days. She had heard it many times. But her first response was, where'd they take his body? Where'd they take his body? They, she couldn't even, like, she couldn't even dawn and her brain couldn't conceive. He's alive. They just took his body. So now she's actually talking to the risen body of Christ, doesn't recognize him. Do you know where they've taken his body? Isn't it, isn't it interesting? You can be so close to religious things, to Christianity things, to Christian things, and still not realize the essence of the reality that he wants. She was around all the parables, all the miracles. He's standing in front of her, the angels, that she didn't recognize it. And tell this, verse 16, Mary, Jesus interrupted her. You know, sometimes Jesus will interrupt you. You ever had Jesus interrupt you in a prayer time? It's okay, it's good if he does, right? He said, Mary, her face turned to him and she shouted, Rabboni, Rabboni. Just take this thought with you. As soon as she heard her name, something about our name, when God calls your name, what happened inside her when she heard him call her name, her whole world stopped. It's like time stopped. Shoo, stop. Wait a minute. It's him. He's alive. That means when he said that, and this scripture, and everything, all this is happening in her brain all, all at once. It's all, it's all true. It's all real. It's all true. And she, the only thing she can say is, Rabbi, Rabbi. Have you heard him call your name? Because when you do, you engage personally. It's not a theory, it's not theology, it's him. Everything changed for her. So could I just ask you this? Have, have you heard him call your name lately? Because this is something, with a, to have a fully conscious relationship, we've got to humble and quiet our soul so we hear him calling us back to him because he wants us to constantly be on a journey, becoming more like him and more intimate with him. So Lord Jesus, this morning I just ask that you would help us to be in the frame of mind and heart to hear your whisper, that we could truly engage you, Lord, not just the things about you, but engage you personally. Lord, help us to become better at following, better disciples. Lord, that we'd be on this journey and then we could take others with us. In the midst of all the craziness, Lord, we would build our life and our house, our heart, our character on you. Could I just ask you this morning, I'm not trying to give you another list of things to do. Just think about the last three 
verbs, transforming. Maybe you could take just one of these verbs a day during the course of a week and say, Lord, today I want to focus on this thing, on seeking or on following or on transforming. If you're here this morning and say, Lord, I know there's some areas that you want to transform me in. Maybe I've been running from those areas. I know there's some areas you want to transform me. Just lift, lift up a hand if that's you. Say, Lord, I'm on this journey and I want some transformation. I know you want it, but I know you, I, I want to want it as well. Maybe you're here to say, and, and you're saying, Lord, Lord, I've been a professional anonymous Christian. I come and sneak in and out of church, different churches or this church, but I need to connect better. I need to get some Barnabases around me, some Silas's, some Timothy's around me. I need to connect better, go on a journey with some people. If that's you, lift up your hand. Maybe it's hard for you to make friends or you don't know how to really connect or make a Silas, but you say, Lord, I want, I want to connect. Lift up your hand if that's you. Lord, I, I don't want to be on this journey alone. And if you're here, the last thing we talk about is really engaging the Lord personally. Now, I, I know this is a church that engages. You guys pray, you guys worship. But, you know, it's possible to be a spectator while everybody else is doing that here, even at Springs Church. If you say, Lord, I need to engage you more. I need to hear you whisper my name and let that compel me to engage you. I want to have a fully conscious relationship. If that's you, this is your hand. Lift up your hand. Say, Lord, I... I need to engage with you. So, Father, right now, you see where we're all at in our journey. Would you help us, Lord? Help us grow, to help us take the next step. If you lifted a hand for any one of those, just whisper, just connect with him right now. Say, Lord, I want some transformation to happen, even this week in this area of my life. I want my roots to change so my fruit will change. Lord, help me to connect this week. Give me some Jonathan David friends around me that I could walk together with. Lord, help me to engage you. Let me hear your whisper this morning. Even this morning, would you just, just quiet your heart this morning? Say, Lord, would you whisper my name this morning? Because I know if I could just hear you whisper my name, everything would change. My engagement with you. Thank you, Lord. It's in Jesus' name we pray and we thank you. Amen. Thanks again for listening to our Springs Church podcast. For other exciting content from Springs Church, be sure to visit us online at springs.church. If you'd like to partner financially with Springs Church, you have the opportunity to give by visiting the Give tab of our website, springs.church.